I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where the intersection of finance, technology, and policy come together. And I'm your host, Chris Brummer. The future of finance is now. There's nothing like Bitcoin. Literally, since it came onto the scene in 2009, it's redefined just how financial and other transactions are memorialized and how commercial communications are executed. Now, at the core of the Bitcoin revolution is its peer-to-peer architecture, which supporters and detractors alike describe as decentralized, given the fact that anyone can at least theoretically participate in the process of operating and updating the Bitcoin ledger that contains all of the transactions that take place on the Bitcoin blockchain. Now, this has, however, raised a number of questions about how to regulate something that is by design diffuse and often itself ad hoc and contingent. Angela Walsh, one of the world's experts in Bitcoin law, has some suggestions. She's noticed that despite the diffuse nature of the Bitcoin ecosystem, it is not one without financial intermediaries. And it is in fact animated by not just individuals, but also groups of highly sophisticated firms coordinating with one another to mine Bitcoin transactions. And this, she argues, provides a possible hook for regulators and even private market participants concerned with the integrity of the Bitcoin blockchain. To walk me through it all and to talk about how such actors operate, Angela has agreed to join me on the show. Angela, thanks so much for making it to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. I'm excited to be here. So, Angela, many of our listeners have a basic understanding, obviously, of what Bitcoin is, but maybe you could give us the standard elevator pitch for uh, how it works and talk to us a little bit about what is meant by a Bitcoin intermediary. Well, basically, uh, Bitcoin is a record-keeping system, and people within it um, add items to the record as um, the Bitcoin, the made-up unit of account, um, is transferred from one party to another. So um, so I've been focusing my research on what parties are active in these systems, um, who actually plays a role, because I'm quite skeptical of a lot of the um, discussion around these systems that nobody's really doing anything and therefore regulators and the world in general don't need to worry. No intermediaries, no intermediary risk. I think there are intermediaries within these systems, and that's what my research is focusing on at the moment. This idea of why decentralization is good is because, look, because it's decentralized, it's almost kind of a, a modern day iteration of sort of portfolio diversification. You know, we, we've we've just made risk so diffuse because it is so decentralized that, you know, one of the policy arguments behind at least some of the sort of regulatory um uh, frameworks or, or thoughts about Bitcoin is like it doesn't really need to be a regulated uh, system because it, it, it's not like the traditional financial system. You don't have these large centralized nodes that pose um, widespread uh, systemic risk, but instead uh, risk is very diffuse. But if you could then walk us through how and under what instances there are intermediaries, 
I think it, it would be quite quite useful because at least for for many people, you think of Bitcoin as a kind of peer to peer system. You know, people are just selling their Bitcoin one to another, or or maybe on exchange. But 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 what kinds of intermediaries do you have in mind? Okay, so. Yes, we have several different types of players in the Bitcoin system. And one part of the system, an important part of the system, is the nodes. Okay, These are the computers within the system that run the Bitcoin software and help to keep uh, the system active. Okay, So some of these nodes don't do anything other than just validate transactions. So people might run their own node if they want to make sure that they have actually validated a transaction that is coming to them to see that the Bitcoin that's coming to them is legit, it's, um, it, it abides by the rules of the network, and the party, you know, they can, they can rely on the Bitcoin being good. So I, I would like run this node on my own laptop or something? The way the system has evolved, initially, people could download the software and um, run the mining software on their system and actually, you know, have a chance of winning this lottery and having their own proposed transactions be added to the ledger. But because this uh, was a way to make money, right, you, you won bitcoins if your transactions were selected to be added, well, that became a competitive market and lots of entrepreneurs developed actually, you know, mining centers where they would run tons and tons of mining rigs, very powerful computing um, equipment to process these transactions because they wanted to win the new Bitcoins. But mining pools often operate with one party, the pool operator, in charge, okay? And the hashers within the pool actually just contribute their computing power to it. But the mining pool operator is the one who selects the transactions that are going to be put in a block that they're proposing. Um, the mining pool operator takes care of things like, you know, telling the hashers within its system of what software they need to run to be part of that mining pool, Okay. And while these may sound like very kind of mundane and um, non-activities uh, that do not require discretion or judgment and therefore, you know, may not be very significant activities in terms of power, we don't know that. And there's actually research emerging all the time now from computer science folks that demonstrates that pool operators particularly have a special kind of power that they can wield by virtue of this position. Why is it that 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 a, a mining pool operator might choose to go in a different direction? I guess what would the theory be there could be a mining operator who's bribed or something? Exactly. Off-chain transactions. So you yes. could have like an off-chain transaction where a, a mining pool operator is given money not to recognize mm -hmm. a certain transaction for any number of nefarious reasons. Uh, and the the question is to whether or not that off chain bribery uh, sort of infects the integrity of the record keeping. Yeah, well, there there can be on chain bribes as well. There can be on chain bribes and off chain bribes, and um, we saw an on chain bribe proposed. Uh, when the big crypto exchange Binance was hacked a number of months ago and a software developer on Twitter said, well, hey, Binance CEO, why don't you undo the hack by bribing miners to, by, by proposing a transaction that would bribe the miners to rewind the blockchain, erasing the hack, 
the theft and going another way. Okay, so the Bitcoin world was up in arms about this. You can't do that, right? You can't go backwards and rewrite the blockchain. And maybe the culture was such that that couldn't have succeeded, but there was certainly nothing technical in the way of that succeeding. It absolutely could have been done. It wasn't done. And maybe the culture is strong enough that that could never succeed. But it's important to recognize that that's a cultural social decision and not a technical one. Are there any useful governance mechanisms or advantages that mining pools tend to serve, uh, particularly when you look at the Bitcoin ecosystem? So mining pools are good for their customers, and their customers are the parties who are the hashers. They contribute computing power to, uh, to the pool and enable the pool to have a better chance of winning the, the lottery that will allow them to win Bitcoins and get their transactions added to the blockchain. They contribute computing power. And this is good for the customers because one little miner, one little hasher in the network has a very low chance of actually guessing that uh, magic number and winning the Bitcoins. But if you combine a bunch of them together, then add it up, they comprise a much more significant uh, part of the hashing power in the network and have a better shot altogether of winning the lottery more frequently. Now, for a, a hasher, a single hasher, this just means that their income stream is more stable and they receive payments from the mining pool operator. It also takes some of the work and complexity um, out of the uh, mining process for the different participants in the pools because the mining pool operator handles more of it, tells them what software to run, et cetera. Angela, I've read that there are also, you know, uh, different kinds of cyber risks that can threaten a pool's hash rate. I mean, is this also associated to sort of the governance mechanism of mining pools or is it something else? So, no, this is absolutely relevant. Um, I think one of the areas where we need more research is what kind of cybersecurity practices um, large pool operators have. Because if a pool operator is knocked offline, say maybe um, through a denial of service attack, then all their hash power that they have um, aggregated together goes offline suddenly. And that opens up opportunities for other parties to attack the Bitcoin system, perhaps in a 51% attack, where they get the power to, to write the ledger um, as they please. So then when you look at all, if, if there are also the, the, the cyber risk, which are sort of tied to the governance mechanism risk, but there's all this uncertainty about who these mining operators are, I mean, well, then what kinds of sort of tasks or questions and, and challenges does this face for regulators here in D.C.? Yes. So I think there are huge challenges raised for regulators, and I think it's something we really need to pay attention to. Um, so far, the way that regulators have approached these systems is to treat them as if they do lack intermediaries. So miners have not been regulated very much. There are some hinting towards that, but it we haven't gotten there. So regulators need to be following research in the area that demonstrates the power that these different parties within the system have and make um, and, and work with experts to understand, well, how does that power um, compare to power that other intermediaries in our existing financial system have? Do they pose similar risks? Are the risks different? And I really think that regulatory analyses, policy analyses need to be tailored to what these parties actually do okay it's you're 
I get pushback a lot that, well, you can't just say they're broker dealers. You can't just say they are transfer agents. They're not exactly the same. Okay, well, let's think about the ways that they're the same, the ways that they're different, and try to come up with a regulatory approach that um, that is tailored to them. And that would probably be different for each blockchain, potentially, because they play a lot of different roles, like from a proof of work to a proof of stake, for instance. Angela, thank you so much. This is really interesting, and it's going to be very interesting to see uh, whether or not this issue will be, in fact, addressed and, and whether or not folks will take uh, a hammer or a scalpel to it. Uh, but it's 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 definitely complicated, and it's really interesting. Thanks so much. Thank you, Chris, for having me. I really appreciate it. One of the trickiest aspects of regulating finance is that regulation, even in the best of situations, involves not only knowing how to regulate, but also knowing what to regulate. From my discussions with Angela, it's pretty clear that in a decentralized ecosystem, finding out what to regulate and then deciding what intermediaries should act as gatekeepers to help sustain the integrity of the system may require as much regulatory innovation as technical creativity. I'm Chris Brummer. Thanks for listening. We want to hear from you. Feel free to email us at fintechbeat at cqrollcall.com or tweet to at chrisbrummerdr. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. Join us next time on Fintech Beat, produced by CQ Roll Call.